0: Welcome to the Semi-Interesting Podcast, where we explore some of the unique legal issues in the global semiconductor industry. My name is Nathaniel Lusek. I'm an IP attorney at the law firm of Hodgson Russ, and one of your hosts.
1: I'm Elizabeth Morris, I'm an IP attorney and director of intellectual property and products at Pure Storage in Mountain View, California, and I am one of your hosts.
0: As we've talked about in a previous podcast episode, artificial intelligence is everywhere. Companies around the globe and across industries are investigating how to use artificial intelligence for things like drug discovery, or more relevant to this podcast, semiconductor device design, or even mundane things like writing press releases. I actually thought about using artificial intelligence to write this intro for me, but I didn't for two reasons. First, I only thought about it a few minutes before we went live and I wasn't sure that I'd be able to come up with a prompt that actually gave me something usable. But second, and more relevant to what we're going to be talking about later, this podcast technically is work-related, and I didn't want to run afoul of any issues that others far brighter than me have considered. So today we have one of those knowledgeable folks with us, my colleague, Roz Marone from Hodgson Russ, to talk about the risks of utilizing artificial intelligence at work and the importance of company policies to keep your company safe, Roz. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you wouldn't mind kicking us off with a quick introduction.
2: Thanks so much, Nathaniel, and thanks so much, Elizabeth, for for having me join you today. Uh, my name is Roz Marone. I am an associate with Hodgson Russ LLP, and I am a member of our data privacy and AI practices here at Hodgson Russ. I regularly advise clients, including publicly traded and in, in PE firms on AI and data privacy matters, including most recently development of AI policies for use in the workplace.
1: That's great, because I know it's something uh, you know I'm struggling with just now, and I hear all sorts of opinions about kind of where policies should be and how companies should be using them. Um, really, as a probably very knowledgeable person helping various clients with this, how do you see AI being used at work these days? Like, What are the general risks and rewards as you see them. I mean, we all saw issues that happened with Samsung, Um, and I'm sure those aren't, <laughs> that's not the only company that's had trouble with that. So, what do you see, Roz? Yeah, as Nathaniel had said in the intro, AI really truly is
2: everywhere. Um, And I think it's important that we set vocab terms before we really dive into this. And so, I think specifically what we'll be talking about most today is generative AI as opposed to just general artificial intelligence. So generative AI is of course, when a user that could be an employee, anybody puts information into oftentimes a large language model or other generative AI model. Um, And that information is generally called input data or just input. And then what comes out of the model is output or output data. Sometimes novel terms are, are used based on product, but we're talking about generative AI. So you put something in, you get something out. So how AI is being used, it is being added into pretty much any kind of enterprise product you can think of these days. So anything Microsoft related, probably due to their large investment in OpenAI specifically, but really any Microsoft product is you're going to start to see GPT be integrated or other OpenAI products be integrated into those products. Google. Is similarly having their their AI generative AI products be added into into their already existing products. Similarly, with Adobe, insert any major company software provider or SaaS provider name here, um, and you're likely to start seeing AI being integrated. What I'm kind of seeing these days, right, is generative AI is used kind of in three ways. It's used for the production of words. And when we think about words, we can think of large language models like ChatGPT. Uh, we can think of images and, you know, big players right there are with uh, MidJourney and Dali. And we can also talk about in the code context too. Copilot is an example of a code-based product. And three of those four products I mentioned are products of OpenAI, which is often synonymously used with just AI generally. But that's just really the, the big players in this space right now. That's not to say that there aren't thousands of other products that are using generative AI and that will exist in your day-to-day work life.
0: And then in terms of risks, I mean, it seems as if we need to consider things like intellectual property or other data privacy things. So why don't we start talking about what some of those possible impacts are to, for example, trade secrets? Because Trade secrets, as many of us know, only maintain protection as long as they are kept secret. AI might be the exact opposite of that.
2: Yeah. I always like to classify the risks in simple terms, right? I think we have three main risk categories when it comes to AI use at work, and that's IP matters, of course, talking about trade secrets, but also copyright. We have issues with bias, and then we also have issues with data privacy. And we can kind of take each one of these one by one. So we'll start first with, with trade secrets. You know, that Samsung example that we, we briefly alluded to before is an excellent example of one, but I think that there's a requirement to reasonably safeguard protections of, of these secrets, right? And if you use a, an AI product that does not prevent your input from training an algorithm, Therefore, making your input data, which in Samsung's case was some source code, part of the public domain, then you're not reasonably protecting that data. Well, someone may say, well, how am I going to get that data out of the algorithm in the first place? Well, people far smarter than me know how to do that. I don't know how to do that, but I do think that that is, you know, a reasonable risk and something that could, if not possible now, could ultimately be keepable. So what's really important with with AI products, and not just in the, in the code realm, but it's being familiar with what your terms and conditions are of the products that you're you're choosing to use, and being very familiar with the license that you're granting by using such products. Oftentimes, free products in their terms and conditions will say that any input that you put into the algorithm can then be used to train the algorithm. So really any trade secret protections then are completely gone. Sometimes you will notice in the terms and conditions that you have a right to ask that your input data not be used to train an algorithm, but most often you have to make that request on a per use basis. So it's not like I'm choosing to use, let's just say ChatGPT for example, I'm choosing to use a free version of ChatGPT, and I am going to say, please don't use my data on September 1st, I need to do that every single time I use ChatGPT and not just on September 1st and then I'm fine going forward. Unfortunately, it is an affirmative opt-out every time a product is used. So that's really an important thing to be cognizant of when using particularly free products. So that's something to be very cognizant of. The issue with trade secrets is if you're using a free product, you have to generally think, that if it's a free product, I'm probably not adequately protecting my trade secrets. As far as copyrights go, that's going to be a kind of a different story. So in that instance, we're talking about words and we're talking about images. If you read the terms and conditions of many of these products, which I have, and I'm very familiar with them in all of the iterations of these terms and conditions, it's that there is no guarantee of novelty of the output from the input data that you're given, which means that Just because I have a specific input does not mean that we don't both receive the same output data. So that becomes an issue if you are publishing some of this output data. If the output data is being used to sell products, for example, there's no guarantee of that novelty. There's also often a requirement under the terms and conditions, and I'm going to say terms and conditions a million times today, but there are requirements under the terms and conditions of many of these AI products that any of the output is cross-validated by a human in some way, shape, or form. And so if it's a mathematical analysis, by using this product, you're implicitly accepting the terms of service and you're implicitly accepting that you will, in fact, cross-validate the information that comes out of of these products. And while that might not seem like a, a huge deal if you're writing maybe copy to a company an advertisement, if you're using it to conduct a mathematical analysis that may inform a business decision, that's a completely different story. So this kind of goes back to the risk in the analysis of what the output data is going to be used for and what the down the line kind of implications of, of that output will be. Thirdly, in terms of copyright and images, there's often a requirement to attribute to the use of AI as well, which I know a lot of people are, are just not doing because they don't familiarize themselves with kind of the rules of engagement with these AI products. So attribution really is is quite important. A big part of, of the use of AI is informing the end user of, of the output data, and that could be one of your clients or a customer or someone reading an article, that it was generated through the use of AI. And a lot of the reasoning behind that is communicating and informing the end user of the data of what risks might be involved with the information that they're being presented with. I think we've seen a lot of examples in the news, one in the legal community in particular that's been a really big example, is the use of OpenAI to write a legal brief. Um, And it had to do with a legal brief that was in the airline industry and the, this lawyer put in certain inputs, and the free product algorithm generated cases that actually did not exist in any way, shape, or form. And, and when, when AI models make up stuff, that's called a hallucination, which I think is really kind of hysterical. But in this particular legal brief, I think it was in the range of 7 to 10 cases that were cited, and, and it was written in a way that looked authoritative. They were completely fake. So that's where the important role of cross-validation comes into play in, in addition to attribution. So it's kind of like the developers of the AI products have an understanding that it's a really wonderful tool, but there are still a lot of risks involved in it. And their terms and conditions are written by very, very smart lawyers that really shift all of that risk onto the users of the products. So that's just our, our one little window of, of IP risks. And then we do have some some other risks that the other two big ones that I like to talk about being that of bias. Bias in in AI models is becoming more and more apparent. And you're seeing a lot of examples on social media these days. And and so these models are kind of being accused of is perpetuating biases that exist in media. And it kind of makes sense why these bias output images are happening because what do we see in the media and how are the the algorithms trained? They're trained on on images and they're trained on information that already exists. So biases that already exist are perpetuated and oftentimes intensified because of how the models are trained. Another really important thing in the business world that our listeners should be mindful of with the use of AI in the business world specifically is the use of AI to assist with hiring practices. There are a lot of location specific laws that are starting to come into play. And one of the biggest ones right now that has been in the news lately and has been written on quite a bit is New York City's AI law. And it, it really is written to address bias. And there are audit requirements for companies that use AI in their hiring practices. And really the onus is on the company using the AI products to prove that the, the products that they're using does not have a bias and does not impact decisions that are me- being made based on bias. And there are similar laws that are being discussed and, and being debated in New Jersey and Maryland and insert major state here, including California, that likes to further complicate most things. It's just something that decision makers and HR folks need to be aware of. And then I think we have just one last risk to talk about too, which is related to to data privacy and how data privacy may be affected when using artificial intelligence at work. And again, this kind of comes into the input and output of the data that is being put into the AI models. So are you using client or your customer information in your inputs? are you including personally identifiable information? Do you have adequate rights to be using this data in this way? So, you know, some of our clients purchase third-party data that aids in certain analytics. And one of the big questions that we were presented with is can I use this third-party provided data in AI to help with my analyses instead of having four associates create their own model and, and use this data to get a useful output? Well. That becomes a terms and conditions question. In your license to this third-party data, do you have permission to use it in that way? Do you have permission to use data with the use of AI? And what I'm starting to see now is probably, in maybe two out of 10 terms and conditions that I, I review now, there are AI terms that are being added. But I think there's a general understanding that unless AI is specifically addressed and specifically prohibited, There's almost an implicit understanding that ai can be used so what we're kind of starting to recommend with with our clients is to do a risk-based analysis as to where ai might be used and what are the biggest impact products or engagements where this might be used and to start having those conversations with your service providers or having those reviews to to really
1: kind of mitigate risk as early as possible Wow. Thanks, Roz. That was a thorough uh, description of some of these risks that we have. I think we might dig down just a little bit on some of them. So I have personally focused a lot on IP risks as an IP attorney, but also you know, aware of this bias issue. But um, circle back on IP for just a minute. When uh, we're using AI in the workplace, what are the IP impacts that we need to worry about the most? I know I've had discussions with our copyright attorney here, about his worry that people even like in the context of say um for marketing purposes will get something that you know as you were saying you know they aren't guaranteeing that the output is novel and so there might be something there that maybe the person creating the marketing material isn't familiar with maybe where the source material is coming from but someone else would say like oh that's a complete ripoff you know and and shouldn't be used. Are there other examples of impacts that we should be really concerned about when using uh, generative AI at work, uh, especially for IP? Well, before we go kind of into other impacts, so
2: some examples that you were just talking about is is being used in, in marketing and in the generation of images or the generation of perhaps some copy or something. If there are key phrases that you're noticing in the copy or that you think will be featured prominently in the copy, do a Google search of it cross-validate it yourself and see if there's a similar phrase that pops up right away. The cross-validation really becomes important, especially if you're going to be using output in your general business practices, right? Especially public facing things, anything that's going to be published. Really using a use a reverse Google image search. If you're generating images, when I was an intern in law school, I did trademark searches until I was blue in the face every day. And Reverse Google Images are really is truly your friend, and you can identify some, some potential risk. Maybe there's not an exact match, but something that looks close enough that could fuel a possibility of confusion case, anything of that nature. There are simple already existing tools that you can use to kind of make the use of AI a little
0: bit safer. Going back to your data privacy summary, how would you know whether or not you have adequate rights to use any of this. I mean is it always contract based or I mean what what would you be looking for to try to assess how big of a risk that is?
2: The unfortunate answer is this really is a case by case analysis. And maybe it's unfortunate for the business folks and maybe not so unfortunate for the, for my lawyer friend but it really, truly is a case-by-case analysis, and it does often tend to be contract-related. So when I'm talking about do you have adequate rights, if we're putting in third-party data, oftentimes data or information or... an information can mean anything, right? It can be words. It can mean numbers. It can mean code. But at those third-party information or third-party data is very often governed by terms and conditions. And those terms and conditions specifically outline acceptable use. And so if you're not familiar with your terms and conditions of the agreement that you have to use this third-party data, I invite you to to read them or have somebody read them for you to try to identify those risks. And the thing that gets tricky, especially in the tech world, is you have product layered on top of product layered on top of product. And you have to pay attention to acceptable use, what terms and conditions you're agreeing to abide by, as well as their privacy policies and how your data is being used and what sort of indemnification provisions you may have with it or what sort of liability you may have associated with the use of that kind of data. If you're not familiar with it, it's really important to have a general understanding because if you don't have an understanding of what your requirements or restrictions
1: are, you can't adequately assess your risk. What if you're thinking, hypothetically, about using a tool that would summarize what happens in an interview? So you've got an AI-generative tool and it's listening to the interview and then it's creating the summary so that the interviewer doesn't have to do that, right? It's like time-staining. It seems to me like maybe there are a lot of risks there and I would love to hear your thoughts on that. I think
2: I might know what product you're thinking about, but if the name of it, it is escaping me, I, and I've reviewed those terms and conditions. If, if it's not a specific product, there is one that does that. But in any event, what I would be concerned with is making sure the interviewee is consenting to the recording first and foremost, understanding where the interviewee is located if they're outside of the U.S. or if they are in a state that has data privacy laws, you might have certain disclosure requirements that you need to tell them, especially with the use of AI, their voice. Yeah, I think just affirmative consent from the interviewee is super, super important. I would be interested in biases involved in the, the algorithm. I would be interested to know if the algorithm detects accents if how things are said, are interpreted or analyzed in a certain way based on certain turns of phrase, you know, people tend to use a lot of colloquialisms and when they're talking. And I wonder if that can inform someone's location. That might be something to think about. And then it's just riddled with PII. You're asking about people and in, in their experience. I think it would be important to understand how the output or how the summary data is used. On the back end by the service provider, if you have a product that's basically skimming a conversation, it could easily identify someone on LinkedIn based off that information. And then once you're able to make the name email connection, then it's a PII domino effect. I would be concerned in, in that regard. Also, I would be concerned with maybe not a trade secret, but some proprietary information that might be shared on on your company's part in conversations with with some candidates that could be potentially damaging too. you know that competitive information that might be shared that maybe is not super specific but given other pieces of information you could draw conclusions from it it also
1: seems to me that even if you're asking an interviewee if they accept these terms i mean they're in a very powerless situation already right so are they kind of being coerced? I mean, can you really even count on that approval? Well, right. And then it becomes a question, well, is there a bias with people who have said no? Right. Like, oh, well, I have this tool and it summarizes all my other interviews, but then this person didn't. And so I just didn't never got around to making that summary. And so they never made it to the next step. It's super, super tricky. I mean, for one of our clients,
2: the biggest thing for them was the proprietary information. It was a similar product, if not the same. The proprietary information really became the biggest concern there and just making sure that use of the output data, you know, the license was extremely restricted. Most of these terms and conditions, though, the licenses are super broad. You know, you grant a perpetual royalty-free, all like insert bad for client language here kind of license. I'm less concerned when data is anonymized, but if there's no anonymization, And there's any way whatsoever to draw a connection between a person and whatever the data is.
1: That's that's where it kind of freaks me out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know uh, something that was a big, slightly different um, situation, but a big drama around here was when Zoom came out with those new terms and conditions that said, you know, if you're using our free product or whatever, we can uh, train on anything you say with a Zoom call or something like that is sort of how it came out, right? And then I know that CEO or somebody, you know, walked that back, you know, kind of publicly and on a LinkedIn posts and such, but it was still, I think, eye-opening. A lot of the terms and conditions specifically
2: state that they can be updated at any time by the service provider. And the service provider will provide notice of such changes by posting to their website or they may send an email to one specific person. And most often though, it's update by website. And unless you or someone within your company is regularly checking the website for any potential changes that could impact your rights, you may, by continued use of a product, be implicitly agreeing to those new terms. And that, I think, is a really big risk also. And we're recommending with a lot of our clients to have a quarterly review of terms and conditions, if not sooner, of their high-risk products. So, like, let's say they're using an open AI product. Have somebody go on their website, check the standard terms and conditions, check to see if the privacy policies have changed. Run a red line, see if there's actually a material change or if it's just, you know, little wording here or there. I'm thinking in particular about the change to OpenAI's T's and C's that happened in March. And if you read them really quick, you're like, oh, this is great. They're not using my data with a free product anymore to train an algorithm. So this is awesome. I can use it. Well, to an untrained eye, that's what it looked like. And they were intentionally drafted to be a little bit confusing. It said, if you're using our API, then we will not train the algorithm with your data well the only way to get the api is if you're paying for the product so it's not particularly useful for me for you to say that in the terms and conditions of the free product so it's like intentionally confusing it took me three times reading the changes in the paragraph to fully comprehend and get it and i'm pretty familiar with these types of terms and conditions you know i read them really quick and i was like oh that's not so bad and i was like wait a minute so you got to be really really cognizant of these changes and be aware that they could really impact your rights. Wow, that's really scary. It's kind of crazy. And that's why like I, with our, our one client, they're a pretty big institutional client and they make a lot of investments in tech. And when they are able to negotiate an MSA or negotiate the terms and conditions and only have those terms and conditions apply, you're not subject to auto updates, you're not subject to changes, only changes are agreed by by mutual written consent of the parties and because that's the only way you can really control your risk. Otherwise, it's kind of like, did you remember to check your terms and conditions last quarter? Well, if a bad incident happens since the change and you've continued use of the product, you're kind of out of luck. Which for some clients, that's okay. But if you're
1: using these products with trade secrets or other IP, it can be a real big problem. Yeah, it really seems like you need to be negotiating these enterprise licenses with anything that your company is really using. But I guess we all in our personal lives need to be aware that, you know, for using uh, these free products, we need to be careful what risks we're putting ourselves up for. I also want to dig just a little bit more into bias. Um, As I said before, it's not an aspect I've thought as much about, but I think it could be really dangerous in what output you get and especially maybe if you don't recognize that they're biased and then you know maybe you're using it to represent yourself or your company or your organization um, in a way that that puts them at risk by you know promoting a bias that's unacceptable so how do you mitigate that sort of risk i think
2: the bias question is one that's really probably the trickiest and the the most concerning and and the most difficult to mitigate because when you're when you're thinking about the use of AI and where bias becomes really important is is when people are involved I keep thinking of bias most often in in the hiring context sort through these 100 resumes and give me the top 10 that match my job description well you don't know necessarily how the algorithm that's informed the model how that's been trained and whether or not there's a bias I don't I am not familiar at this stage of an adequate way of measuring bias in an AI product. There are people who are far smarter than me who may already be contemplating this or or coming up with means of how to measure bias and things of that nature. But what I do know is this is really, truly where the cross-validation comes back into place. And when we're talking about products, especially as it relates to humans and hiring decisions, those products are really putting the onus back on the user. I, I Believe it or not, I reviewed terms and conditions for a a hiring product just today, and it is using all public information. So the input and whether or not you have adequate rights to use the data, that question is gone with this particular product. But it specifically stated in the terms and conditions that you will not use this product or the output of this product as the basis for a hiring decision or the basis for an employment decision. Well, then isn't that the purpose of the product? Well, sure, it's the purpose of the product, right? But by using that product, you are agreeing to cross-validate with the output that it's giving you. So if you're not cross-validating the output and say, for example, the first 10 times you use this product, you, you run the resumes or run the names through this product, and then you have your human do it how you normally would do it. And then if you see that there is a bias in the output, you know it's your responsibility to review in sort of that way which i think a lot of people don't think about when they're adopting these tools right you adopt a tool to make your job easier not to double your efforts. and really what a lot of these products are saying that you will do as a user is you will validate the output that you're given which kind of undermines the purpose of it but that also re-emphasizes why it's so important for you to be familiar with the terms and conditions of your products and what you're using and what's going into it and how they're using your data
0: okay so you've sufficiently scared us at this point that you're going to make biased decisions your trade secrets are in jeopardy and you're possibly not following data privacy rules that you previously agreed to okay we're not able to make artificial intelligence go away. In fact, as you said at the beginning, it's becoming ubiquitous. It's going to be in everything. So what do you do to address this? I mean, how do you actually get anyone to follow instructions? I assume that the answer is, as outside counsel is, hooray, more documentation, more paperwork, more review, more policies. Is is that right?
2: As far as adopting the use of AI in in the operation of your business or in the operation of your company you really need to do so in an intentional way. It's not something that you can kind of be like, "Yep, we're going to use AI or no, we're not going to use AI." Yep, we're going to use AI without an intentional and focused review of how it may be used is just a recipe for a disaster. And all across the board prohibition of AI, I think similarly is a recipe for a disaster. So, there's a certain procedure that we've started to to kind of implement with with our clients and and one that I think is a useful exercise in And one you should do in a collaborative way is kind of an AI use mapping. So how does or how will your company use AI? How will it be most beneficial? Where is it riskiest? And the biggest thing here is to make it collaborative and certainly not make it punitive. Because the people that you're asking are the people who are going to want to be using these tools. And if there's any inkling that they're going to be punished for already having used them, that's not going to be to anybody's benefit. Right. And also just by, you know, let's say you're an engineering company. If you only ask your engineers, you're missing 75 percent of the equation because your HR folks may want to use it. Your marketing folks may want to use it. Certainly your IT folks also want to use it. So it really has to be kind of a holistic review and a comprehensive discussion and really truly one that needs to be collaborative and intentional as opposed to let's make a one size fits all policy. Because uh, I can think of three examples in the last week with three different clients where a specific portion of an AI policy might make sense for marketing, but it certainly does not make sense for their engineering folks. So really, a one-size-fits-all policy, while nice, doesn't always work in practice.
1: So this idea of, like, well, let's do some guess and check, right? Or let's have some proof of concept. Let's have some people work on where we think it would be useful and then create a policy around that once we know what is really effective and what is really scary. Sort of sounds a little bit like fail early, fail often, right? Which is, you know, a great policy for some companies but also very risky so i guess i'm uh, i just want to dig into that a little bit more like how would a company go about creating a policy that that works maybe not for everyone but has these pieces that are gonna i mean how do you even divide up the company or how do you figure out what is too risky without you know having a samsung situation then right
2: yeah i think it really is a difficult process and not a quick one i probably took three and a half months with one client to develop an intentional, really well-focused policy that kind of worked for different areas of their business. And it was time-consuming, but it also resulted in an investment decision in a particular product. So the answer for them was, we're not going to prohibit AI. We cannot, in our business, prohibit AI. The answer was, well, we're not going to have 17 different AI products based on business unit. We're going to make one investment with one particular product that will work for the majority of our business units. And one thing that I haven't mentioned is when you purchase an AI product, you often have far better terms applied to that engagement, especially in regards to the protection of your data and whether or not your data is used to train algorithms. And so when I say an investment was made, It was an investment made to purchase a product, but it was also an investment made in the protection of their data and all the information that may be treated as input data into any AI product. So that was kind of one approach that was taken. I think there are a lot of different questions that companies should be asking themselves. What does your company lose by not using AI? If you're in a highly regulated industry, you're probably not losing that much because your ability to use AI is, is greatly limited. Think the medical field. Medical field is not really touching AI with a 10-foot pole at this time. Specifically, in terms and conditions of a lot of AI products, they're saying this product cannot be used in the practice of medicine or providing medical services to humans because just think of the liability that would be associated with that. But let's say your company is a marketing company and your job is to output 10 different ad campaigns and you might significantly lose your productivity by not using ai in some way shape or form then on the opposite side of that coin ask your question what does your company gain by using ai and what does that mean for your productivity what does that mean for your staff members how are your clients already or your customers already using ai are they afraid to touch it do they want you to say how they're going to use it? Some of our clients, uh, we're advising them to include even in their initial non-disclosure agreement, the, pro- the strict prohibition of, of AI with any confidential information that that's shared. And that was a decision that they made that they're okay themselves using AI, but they don't want anybody else using AI. Because they can't trust that maybe their third-party vendors have adequately vetted the use of AI in their context, and they can't say for certain that their data that's being given to the spender isn't used to train an algorithm. So they're, they're choosing to use AI for themselves, but any third party, unless they can cross validate that it's not going to be used, they're saying, no, please don't use it at all. So that's kind of a question to be asked. And then you really need to do an analysis in terms of risk tolerance. Some industries are just generally okay with being riskier and others are not. The analysis really comes down to risk comfort. And, you know, we haven't seen a ton of lawsuits related to AI yet. And I think we're going to start seeing them probably within the next, you know, six to 18 months. We do have one large AI lawsuit right now, but that's in the open source software space and the use of open source software and actually the writing of some of these AI products. So that's kind of different, not really applicable right now. But I think we're going to start to see some lawsuits, you know, when if somebody's reputation is damaged or somebody doesn't get a job. Or if somebody something happens because of AI and there, there's a direct causal link to AI, I think we're going to start seeing these lawsuits. And it wouldn't surprise me if the majority of the lawsuits are class action just based on the, the size of the injury and, and how, how these products really work. It just comes kind of back down to, to risk tolerance. And, and until we have more information on, on how it's going to look in terms of actual risks and problems that are happening through lawsuits, we can only take our best guess and and just do it based on on comfort level with risk.
0: Do you have any quick tips after you get this policy? It's customized for individual apartments or individual teams. You you spent time to think about what works best across different sectors of your company. How do you actually get someone to follow this instead of just like I was going to do at the beginning, where I think, oh, it'd be funny if I just have AI write me my intro but then i'd need to be able to say wait, hold on. <laughs> There's probably a policy, and maybe i had training, maybe the website is blocked, you know? I mean, what what do you do?
2: Yeah, so like any other policy, right? It, enforcement is the tricky part. I think the biggest part that will be useful in its development is if you have buy-in from across the company. It's easier to get buy-in and compliance if somebody's been invested in developing it in the first place. So making sure that it's Developed with the company kind of as a whole, addressing the different potential uses. I think that's step number one to make your life easier. Step number two to potentially make your life easier is, is inform and educate. Have a formal training session. Explain the risks associated with using these products out of compliance with the policy. Provide specific examples in your industry and with your clients. And if you're a tech-based company, the Samsung example is a great one. My husband's a tech developer, and as soon as I read that article, I gave it to him, and he sent it to all of his guys, and they've been terrified since. So finding good examples that are applicable to your industry of how to do things the wrong way and also how to do things the right way is really, really helpful. I think locking down prohibited sites, if you're saying, okay, you know what? We have chosen to invest in open AI products. We're using DALI for generation of images, lockdown mid-journey you know if you've paid for a product there's no need to use another product that opens you up to risk if you've chosen to risk mitigate by using another product we've had some clients implement pop-ups on sites that they do permit their employees to use um, but it requires an affirmative acknowledgement of the policy so the policy is reinforced every single time the product is visited and the employees you know they probably stop reading it after the second or third time But at least it's a little bit of a trigger to remind them that there is a policy in place. And I think something to just always keep in the back of your mind is that there will always be someone who accesses prohibited sites on their personal devices. It's just going to happen and it's going to have to be understood. You can try to prevent that as much as possible. But if someone wants to use a free version of ChatGPT and you have a wall up against it on your work IP addresses or if you VPN in or whatever... Someone's just going to use their personal computer at home or they're going to pull up their phone, get off Wi-Fi and just use, you know, go over 5G and, and use it anyway. So just be cognizant of those risks.
1: Yeah, that's that's great. Thanks so much. I mean, I, I do think that, you know, I guess probably from a company's perspective, if somebody goes and does that on their own personal device, um, you know, chat GPT or something, then uh, the risk to the company is fairly low if you had a policy in place anyways. Right. I mean, I guess you could still lose code, but I think it depends on if it's a company provided device. That's uh, probably true. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. At my uh, law firm, back in my law firm days, at some point, they decided to prohibit people from using Gmail because they thought that Gmail was not safe enough. And I got a special exception because Google was my client and I was working on Gmail related patents. And so I was like, oh, I need to use this for my work, right? I need to know how it works to, you know, work on these patents. And then my boss was like, oh, that's a fantastic idea. I'm going to get that same exception. So if employees really want to, I guess, you know, they're going to find a way. And all you can do is sort of educate and, and inform people as to the risks that they're taking on when uh, when they do that. Absolutely. So thank you so much. This was um, really fascinating. I have actually lots of other questions that I would love to ask you. There's specific examples of things that, um, that are running through my mind. But I think, uh, you know, from a general perspective of, you know how can we get these policies in place and and uh, get people to um, get excited about AI, but in a sort of a safe way. This is this has been awesome. So thanks so much, Rosalind. It was great to to meet you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Semi Interesting Podcast. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts, including YouTube.
0: And if you enjoyed the episode, we always appreciate five star reviews. While we talked about legal issues, none of the information shared during this podcast is intended to be legal advice. If you have any questions about information we cover or ideas for a future episode, feel free to contact me or the other attorneys at Hodgson Russ. You can find contact information at www.hodgsonruss.com.